study through the pastoral letters. Uh, today we'll be looking at 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. Paul wrote this letter, of course, to give guidance, to give encouragement to Timothy as uh, Timothy was addressing problems, uh, acting as pastor in the Ephesian church. Big problem was people, including some of the leadership, who were teaching what Paul describes as strange doctrines. In the verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul is moving toward the end of the letter. And he once again takes aim at those who were teaching those false doctrines. And so the things he, ends, he, he says here end up being really a helpful warning to us about things that can lead to a person really denying the faith. So, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So these are, there are actually three things from these verses that I want us to focus on. First, we'll consider the warnings that Paul gives about, about things that lead people away from their Christian faith. Second, we'll look at something that Paul has talked about multiple times throughout this letter, and that is true godliness. And then third, Paul speaks of the importance of contentment uh, in obtaining true godliness and actually avoiding a shipwreck in the faith. So, first main point is this. Believers must carefully heed the warnings about things that can lead to a shipwreck of their faith. Back in chapter 1, Paul reminds us, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to try to save sinners. He didn't come to partially save sinners. He came to fully save. So for one to be truly saved means that they will never totally and finally fall away from the state of grace, but they will certainly persevere in their faith to the end of their life. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it, uh, will be faithful to complete it. So we can have a certainty about our salvation. Then why do we see things in the scripture that talk about people who were supposedly Christians falling away and making shipwreck of their faith? Paul actually mentions two men in particular in 1 Timothy 1.19 who had done just that. So in the verses we're looking at this morning, Paul tells us how that can happen. And in telling us how that shipwreck can happen, he is giving all believers a warning. He's basically saying, make sure this doesn't happen to you. Now the fact that there are some people who do make shipwreck of their faith 
tells us they were never truly saved to begin with. Jesus actually spoke of this in Matthew 7, 21. He said there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. So is Jesus Christ Lord? Well, yes, of course he's Lord. And it's required of anyone who would become a Christian to receive him as Savior and Lord. But Jesus is saying that for some people, it's only a profession of their mouth. Their actions don't show that their life was actually changed. They, don't, they show that they really weren't born again after all. So there are people who appear to be Christians who in reality are not. That's why these warnings in Scripture are so important. Those who are truly born again and they hear warnings like this, they will make application in their life because they want to be clear, they want to be careful. For those people who are Christian in name only, they will ignore the warnings because they don't think they apply to them. So these warnings really are vitally important, and we must take them all seriously. Now, the warnings that we're considering show up in verses 3, 4, and 5. Paul begins by pointing out something that's vital for every believer to do first, and that's this. Believers must hold firm to the sound gospel doctrines that are focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sound gospel doctrines that are focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 speaks of those who advocate a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the f following verses actually describe the sins that this person is guilty of who is pulling away from that. But right up front, Paul tells us what believers should do. We must not go after those different doctrines. Instead, we pursue what he describes as sound words. The word for sound here speaks of something being in good health. It's not sickly. It's not diseased in any way. And more specifically, these words are those of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. Now, those would be words that Jesus actually spoke, but also those who bear the stamp of his authority, and that would especially include the words of the apostles that he commissioned to speak on his behalf. Well, these sound words would include multiple things. They would include the fact that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah. He's the Christ. It would include the fact that he, that he is the eternal Son of God. Those, those sound words include the fact that his death and resurrection provide salvation for all who will believe. Those sound words include the fact that all men are sinners and need a Savior. It would also include the fact that his resurrection was a bodily resurrection. In other words, it actually really did happen. It would include the fact that he was ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he reigns as king. It would include the fact that the, that the whole of both the Old Testament and the New Testament books are divinely inspired and are therefore the word of God. And we could give other things. Those are some of the basics. And Paul makes it clear that those who agree with these sound words will live a life that is, in fact, a godly life. The faith and the life of one who believes in Lord Jesus Christ are supposed to match up what we believe and how we live. So those who believe that a person can be saved and then live an ungodly life are not believing what is called sound, healthy doctrine. That's a belief that is sickly and diseased. We're warned here not to fall for that false teaching. Next, Paul begins to describe what happens when people cease to hold to those sound 
gospel doctrines that are focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there's several things that Paul points out here. First thing he points out in these verses is this. Those who become puffed up with their own religious ideas and curiosities show that they actually know nothing in the way they ought to know. They know nothing in the way they ought to know. So these people who are advocating different doctrines are first described in verse 4 as being conceited, uh, puffed up with pride. Well, why is that? It's because they've strayed away from sound doctrine and come up with something better in their mind. Now, first off, we just need to think about something here. If you truly understand the gospel, it will humble you, not make you proud. The gospel makes it very clear that we are all sinners. The gospel makes it clear that we all actually deserve his eternal condemnation for the way we've lived, for the things that we've said, for the things that we think. The gospel also tells us that we are incapable of changing ourselves. We can't change our own hearts. We're dependent on a gracious God to change our heart. So what it is about those truths that would make you proud? Nothing. They humble us. So someone who is puffed up with pride, someone who is conceited, is making it clear, first off, they don't even understand the gospel. What they're proud of is they have come up with something better. They have progressed, progress, uh, being progressive is a big word now, they have progressed really beyond biblical gospel to make it more palatable. The progressions generally include that the fact that man is really not that bad, that God will accept us just the way we are with no repentance required, that there are other things in the realm of religion that are actually more interesting than sound gospel doctrines that are focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, Paul says they understand nothing. Now, what he's not saying there, he's not saying they have actually zero knowledge of anything. What he's saying is their knowledge, what they think, the knowledge that they think they have is distorted. It's not true knowledge. They have changed the gospel, so they no longer have a proper understanding of the gospel. They have changed the Bible's indictment of man as a sinner, so they no longer see how needy we truly are apart from Christ. They have diluted the text of the scripture that it no longer says what it really says, at least according to them. In fact, there will be certain things in the inspired word of God that they will out and out reject because it doesn't fit with the things that they think or things that are more culturally popular. When those things happen, they are showing they actually know nothing in the way they ought to know it. And it all goes back to their personal conceit and arrogance. So this is a warning against pride that we all have to take seriously. Next, Paul points out that religious pride leads to an unhealthy focus on controversy and strife. So the person's pride not only leads to a lack of true understanding of the gospel, it leads also to all kinds of controversies with others. 
In verse 4, Paul says, This person has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. Whereas the word sound doctrine speaks of something that is healthy, the word morbid speaks of something that is sick and unhealthy. It especially speaks of sickness of mind. This is a spiritual sickness. I mean, this person enjoys bringing up controversial questions, not for the purpose of greater biblical understanding, but to move away from sound words. They're also calling attention to what they see as superior knowledge that they would have. In chapter 1, Paul spoke of those who were paying attention to myths and endless genealogies, which gave rise, he said, to mere speculation. The Jews really had many things like that, that all kinds of curiosities, and these amounted to disputes about words uh, that would serve to get people off the focus of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So instead of looking at the plain meaning of a text, these people get off on tangents that serve no good purpose at all. What they do is get people upset. There's strife, there's abusive language, there's evil suspicions. He talks about constant friction. Of course, friction speaks of two things rubbing together, causing irritation. They will bring these unhelpful controversies up, especially when someone is actually speaking of or someone they know who holds to a true biblical gospel. They'll not agree to be described as a sinner who has no hope of salvation apart from Christ. They're going to bring up these controversial issues, oftentimes in a cultural setting, to get people off track. It also talks about abusive language here. And it's interesting, that's the idea of calling people names, you know, if they don't agree with you. And we know that once you stoop to someone, someone stoops to the place that all they have left is to call somebody names, that means they have run out of arguments. They can't really talk on a true level about what this issue is, so they call names. They put labels on someone so they don't have to deal with the issues. So this is further warning here about how religious pride can lead to ungodly actions. Finally, Paul says in this section that the end result is depravity of mind, which means one is deceived and deprived of the truth. Paul calls these people men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth in verse 5. And the words used that he used here really speak of the whole inner man. They speak of us morally as well as intellectually being corrupted. No longer able to clearly identify and distinguish truth from lies. It's as if God has given them over to deception. They've been pursuing things that are deceptive, and it's this God has given them over to that. And the really scary thing about being deceived is that you think you're right. You think you're correct in what you believe. That's the whole idea of being deceived. You think it's right, but in reality, it's wrong. So you can end up basing your life, basing your decisions, basing your whole idea of, 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 of your own future on things that are wrong and don't even realize it. And that's what's so scary about being deceived. These men had access to the truth of the gospel and rejected it. And they went so far in their rejection that it seems that God has given them over to these strange doctrines. 
And then to further illustrate how self-centered they were, Paul says they've even found ways to make money off of this so-called godliness, which is a completely false godliness. People will donate money to them. People will buy their materials. People will give to the causes that they stand behind or uh, support. And it's sad to see how easily people who have denied sound gospel doctrines that are focused on Jesus Christ, how easily they, how much they are readily embraced by so many people. So Paul's warning is be careful. You have to be careful. This is real. And then Paul gives a word in the middle of this paragraph that he's addressing these false teachers, especially in the, in the middle of this, he talks about true godliness. He says this in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So Paul picks up the idea that false teachers use their strange doctrines to make profit off of others. And he said there really is a kind of gain that Christians should rightly pursue. So our second main point is this. Believers must regularly pursue the great gain that comes from a Christ-centered godliness. So in the midst of warning people about advocating and pursuing false doctrines, Paul speaks about the great advantage that comes from true godliness. So whatever material gain that a person might make from false teachings, I mean, just cannot compare at all to the gain every Christian has from true Christ-centered godliness. There's a quote on your outline by John Gill. He was a Baptist minister in the 17th century. And uh, I, I liked his, his definition of this godly man or of godliness. He says, a man possessed of true godliness is a gaining, thriving man. Such as are godly or truly gracious, they are coming to good and happy circumstances and are the possessors of the true, solid, satisfying, durable and unsearchable riches of grace. So a person who has a true faith in Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior, is a person who is godly. Their life has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. They're a new creation in Christ. Their faith is real. They have a confident hope that they will be with the Lord for all eternity. They have a love for God, a love for his people. They are people who worship the Lord personally as well as corporately. And Gill says these people are gaining. These are thriving people. He says they have a true, solid, satisfying, durable riches. And those riches are God's grace. Well, what are those riches? Let me give you a few examples. These people are certain that the price for their sins has been paid in full. So they know, no matter how guilty they, they know they're all, they know they're guilty of sin, no matter how much guilt is there, they know that every sin is fully paid for. They know that. They know that they are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So they know that they stand fully righteous before God, and again, it's because of Christ. They're part of the household of God. They know that's true because they've been adopted into his family. They are heirs of God. They are joint heirs with Christ. In fact, really, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is theirs in Christ. And the Lord is regularly working in their life so that they abound in good works. 
So because of all this, godliness is a means of great gain. I mean, it's a gain that is much more valuable and more lasting, more durable than any material gain that we might have. So then as Paul speaks of this gain that is far superior to any material assets we might have, he also points out the importance of contentment as far as godliness is concerned. Because it's because of a lack of contentment that many people are tempted to compromise their faith if they think it'll be more profitable for them to go another way. These temptations can be very strong temptations. So our third main point is this. Godly contentment should be highly valued and guarded carefully. In Paul's warning about the depravity of those who reject sound doctrine and alongside his speaking highly of great value of true godliness, in the midst of that, he gives some detail on the value of contentment. It's all connected together. Because one who rejects sound doctrines that are focused on Jesus Christ is going to struggle greatly with contentment in any sense. Because they don't have that great gain. So they have so many things to be discontent about. But one who has the great gain of godliness has every reason to be content. But even so, there's going to be many challenges to contentment. We all deal with that pretty much daily, I would think. So Paul takes some time to talk about it in some detail. First thing we note is this. Godly contentment recognizes that the state of the soul, the state of the soul is not based on outward means and possessions. Verse 6 and 7. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. So in the context of godliness... That's accompanied by contentment. Paul points out a basic, fundamental reality. You came into this world with nothing, and you're going to leave the same way. The Bible speaks of this truth in several places. You probably remember what Job said. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. So it's foolish, Paul is saying, to put all our focus on outward possessions that are merely temporary. Since that's true, it's the state of our soul that's primary. Every soul of every believer will live forever. Every person is going to live eternally in some fashion. Well, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ addresses our whole self, and it addresses us, it addresses our soul. It's a godliness that gives us, like John Gill said, that gives us true, solid, satisfying, durable riches. It's the riches of God's grace that are given to us, the kind of riches that make your soul wealthy. So our relationship to the Lord must be primary. To focus on materialism is shallow, it's it's short-sighted, it's foolish. It's also easy to do. So our first lesson about the need to pursue contentment really comes to us at birth. We come with nothing, we're going to leave with nothing. 
That leads to the second lesson. Godly contentment is content with basic needs and receives what God provides with gratitude. Verse 8, he says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. So a focus on the spiritual health of our soul does not mean we have no material needs at all. We do. And Paul's not saying that you need to only allow yourself the bare minimum if you want to be truly godly. There are people who have done that and really misunderstood these things. And that's what we talked about as asceticism, which he condemned back in chapter 4. Paul is really saying the same thing here that Jesus said when he told us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So we recognize we have basic needs if we're going to survive, and we're asking God to provide those needs. But he's also giving us a warning here about how we think about the material things that we, in our mind we think we can't do without. So instead, he's encouraging us to be content with what we have, with what God has given us. Here's how the Baptist Catechism describes what Jesus meant when he says, give us this day our daily bread. It says this, we pray that of God's free gift, we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life and enjoy his blessing with them. So part of the contentment is recognizing that all good things come to us from God. He is our provider. And we should be regularly, daily expressing gratitude and thanksgiving for the things that God has given, for the way he's provided for us in our life, and enjoy the things that he's given. There's nothing sinful about enjoying what God has given. It's a right thing to do. So gratitude is an example of true godliness. It helps us focus on God's goodness to us. On the other hand, if we regularly complain about what we have or what we don't have or the fact that somebody else has more, that leads to discontent. And discontent is not godly. Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan minister who wrote uh, a well-known book that you can still get on contentment. Here is his definition of that word. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You could take a lot of time looking at each one of those words individually and making application. We don't have time to do that. But just a few things here. Contentment is, is, is inward, he says. It's quiet. It's dependent on God's grace. So contentment includes really an inward calmness as opposed to getting all worked up about circumstances and situations in life. In this passage, Paul is especially focusing on material things, material possessions, although contentment goes way beyond the stuff that we have. But uh, he's especially focusing on that here. So contentment not only submits to God's wisdom and goodness, but also delights in him in the midst of the circumstances. One thing that's helpful to know, uh, Paul tells us in uh, Philippians 4.11 that contentment is something that has to be learned. Matter of fact, Paul says, I learned to be content. So contentment doesn't come to anybody naturally. It's not a natural thing. No matter how long you've been a Christian, 
there are always going to be opportunities to grow in contentment, to continue to learn to be content in whatever our circumstances are. And the more content we are, the more we realize the great gain that we have in true godliness because it always points us back to the gain that we have that's durable, that we can't lose. Then Paul gives more warnings to help us see this value of contentment. Verse 9, he says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So in this verse, Paul warns us that those who let greed overcome them reject godly contentment and open themselves up to many temptations and snares. So Paul warns about the desire to get rich. This doesn't mean, by the way, that it's wrong to want to be successful. I mean, we should do the best we can. My understanding is that Christians should be the best at whatever they do. If it's a job, if it's being a mom, if it's being a dad, if it's being an athlete, whatever it might be, whatever it might be, Christians should be the best. We may not have the most natural skill, but we do the best because whatever we do, we are doing for the glory of God. So this doesn't mean that we should not want to be successful and do things well. We do want to do things well. But it does mean, I mean, I also want to mention here, it's not wrong to make money. It's not wrong to spend your money wisely or invest your money. And those are good things. The problem here is having your heart set on money, on getting more and more and more and more stuff, just because you want more and more and more stuff. Maybe because everyone else is getting it and it makes you want to get it too. So he's talking about greed here. And the problem with greed is it causes us to fall into temptations. And he says these temptations prove to be a snare, a trap that causes you to get into something deeper and deeper than you ever intended. And once you get in, you realize it's almost impossible to get out of this trap, to get out of the snare. One of the big ways this shows itself, especially in our culture, is when people get called in extreme debt. Um, they've, become, they've become accustomed to spending money that they do not have. Debt, the Bible describes debt as slavery, as bondage. The Bible never has anything good to say about debt. Everything you look up about debt in the Bible is going to be something bad to avoid it. So we're to avoid debt if we possibly can. Going into a debt for a purchase should not be the first option that comes to mind. I never forget the. Uh, this is several years ago. We were turning in a rental car or getting a rental car, but something like that. But there was somebody in front of us who um, was having some problems with their rental car that they were trying to turn in and get a new one, get another one. They had three or four credit cards, and every one of them were to the max. They said, "Well, try this card. Try this card. Try this card." All their cards had been maxed out, and they were just. That's how you could say, I thought, gosh, this is so sad. That's how they live. They live on debt. They have not learned not to do it another way. That's the kind of traps you get in, and those are bad, bad traps. 
they end up causing you to be desperate, maybe to go after foolish schemes, get things dishonestly. So Paul says these foolish, harmful desires, he says, plunge men into ruin and destruction. They indulge in pleasures and gratifications that can destroy the soul. In fact, he says it leads to destruction. And he's especially talking here about the eternal destruction of the soul. Which leads us to Paul's final warning in this matter. He makes it clear here that the love of money can ultimately lead to a shipwreck regarding faith accompanied by deep heart sorrows. So that ruin and destruction of verse 9 are elaborated on in verse 10. He says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul is talking about spiritual ruin. Yes, greed, the love of money can have terrible consequences in life. But Paul is especially focusing on the spiritual consequences. He's talking about people who have rejected the true godliness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And in place of that, all manner of evil awaits them. Take note also here in verse 10. Verse 10 is oftentimes misquoted here. It's often said that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. That's not what it says. It is not, only, it is not the only root of evil. It is an important root of evil, but it's not the only one. Uh, the verse is properly translated as money is a root of all sorts of evil. In commenting on this verse, Patrick Fairbairn said, There is no kind of evil to which the love of money may not lead men when it once fairly takes hold of them. So being a slave to the love of money should be something we go out of our way to avoid. And this is a key reason to ask God to give us a heart of contentment, to be satisfied with the daily provisions he gives, and to be thankful and enjoy the things he has provided for us. The worst evil the love of money leads us to is wandering away from the faith. Back in chapter 1, like we mentioned before, Paul speaks of this as making shipwreck of your faith. And here he talks about it as it's accompanying Accompanying that is being pierced with many griefs. The image here is really a pretty gruesome image. He speaks here of being impaled with many griefs. I mean, these are life-altering, even life-ending type things. Impaled with many griefs. And the worst grief is that the person has come to the place of giving up the basics of the Christian faith. They no longer trust in Christ for salvation. Instead, they are bitter toward him because he doesn't feed all their lust. He won't accommodate everything that they want. They've also lost their happiness. Instead of the great gain of godliness, there are sorrows of heart that are overwhelming. So these are warnings that we're supposed to listen to. We have to guard ourselves from straying against from straying from sound gospel doctrines that are focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. We guard ourselves from religious pride. We guard ourselves from greed, from a love of money. And instead, we daily pursue the great gain that comes from a Christ-centered godliness. We pursue godly contentment in life every day. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the help that it gives us. Even when it gives us warnings, which are part of the things that help us grow, to help us be, to be careful about things. And so those warnings are there. And they're not meant just to slough off and say, well, that's not a problem that I have to think about. And if it's not something that's a, a major temptation for us, then we thank you for that. At the same time, we always need to be careful. We always need to be careful to know that our, the great gain that we have is in you. That is the greatest gain. Thank you for the ways you provided for us in so many ways. Help us to continue to enjoy the way you've provided for us. But help us to value even more highly the gain that we have in Christ, all that is ours because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So we thank you so much for that. Lord, I ask for your help in learning better to be content. Learning better what that means. Applying that truth more consistently in my life. Lord, I ask for your help for us in that. That is something that Paul puts down here as something that should be highly valued. Lord, help us to grow in that. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, that's where the great gain comes from, is Jesus Christ. So I would invite you to receive him as Lord and Savior. Prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that, that I am a sinner. I realize that I want stuff that is really not right for me to have. It's wrong. And I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, the one who saves me from my sin. I want to receive him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, we, you can make a note in your tear-off, or those watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ.